Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Professor Ed Bullmore. You're the head of psychiatry at the University of Cambridge and author of the book, The Inflamed Mind. Welcome to the show. Well, it's great to have the chance to talk to you about the book. No, thank you. And, and we're here at the University of Cambridge at the Herschel Smith Building for Brain and Mind Sciences. So thank you for inviting us in. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So perhaps we should start with what, what we mean by the inflamed mind mm. and perhaps explore from there. Mm. So in, the basic idea of the inflamed mind is that you know inflammation, which we often think of as something that happens in the body, uh, could have implications for how we feel and how we think. So inflammation can have effects on the mind as well as the body. I mean, that in a nutshell is the central idea of the book. Um, and, you know, it might not seem like a particularly weird idea to many people because I think a lot of people have had experiences of being inflamed and noticing a change in their mood at the same time. So, for example, in the book, I talk quite a lot about my own experiences with teeth. You know, I have, I'm afraid to say, I have a chronic inflammatory disease of my teeth, chronic periodontitis, to give it its technical term. And occasionally I have to go and see dentists and they fiddle about with my teeth. And after one of those episodes, um, I found myself feeling a bit gloomy and didn't really want to talk to anybody when I got home. And I was lying in bed thinking about the future and how long I had yet to live and so on and so forth. And my first thought was, you know, yes, I'm feeling a bit depressed because I've just been to the dentist and they've told me, you know, that there's work to be done and, you know, uh, I'm literally getting along in the tooth. And then I thought, well, maybe there's another possible explanation, which is that, you know, the dentist, when they were working on my inflamed teeth, stimulated inflammatory proteins to circulate through my body, got into the brain and changed the way I was thinking about things. Um, so I put that in the book just as an example, but I think a lot of people have had those sort of experiences of having some kind of inflammation in their body and noticing at the same time that their mood is a bit different or they feel less energetic, a bit more fatigued. Um, they're sort of experiencing some psychological symptoms at the same time as they have an inflammatory thing going on in their body. I think that's quite a common experience. Yeah, and, and you address in the book why people who don't believe that there's a, a potential link between what's happening in the body and what's happening in the brain physically, mm. that they will say, oh, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Yes. Well, you would feel that yes. way, wouldn't you? Yes. Because you've got a sore tooth or whatever it might be. Yep. But you're saying something different here. Yeah. So I think the you know the the catchphrase when you know you would do wouldn't you you know is is one that uh, cropped up and again I tell this story in the book when I saw a patient with uh, rheumatoid arthritis so that's an inflammatory disease of the joints um, and I talked to her and she turned out to be quite depressed and I went to the doctor the physician who was sort of the consultant on the case and said you know. I've just spoken to this patient, she's obviously got arthritis and she's depressed. And that's when he said, well, you would be, wouldn't you? And what he meant by that was she is depressed because she's thinking about the consequences of her arthritis. You know, she knows that that's a, a long-term disease. 
treatment at the time wasn't very effective. Um, you know, in a few years' time, she might be less mobile, maybe in a wheelchair. She could see all these things coming. And it was her conscious reflection on the implications of her physical disease that made her depressed. That's a lot of unpacking of a very sort of succinct, you know, dismissive phrase. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? But I think that's what it means. It means that the depressed mood goes with the physical disease by a sort of psychological reflection. And the idea in the book is that there could be, in some ways, a simpler explanation, which is that uh, feeling depressed is part of the syndrome of having an inflammatory disease. It's directly related, it's a symptom of arthritis in the same way that the joint pain and the swelling is a symptom of arthritis. It, it doesn't depend on you having to know that, that you've got that diagnosis and then reflect on it. It's just a direct biological connection. Right. And, and what I found really valuable in the book was the way you broke down what inflammation means in terms of its mechanics mm. and then how that operates both in the body and then potentially in, in the brain. Could mm. you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, inflammation, I think lots of people know something about inflammation. So we all know that, you know, if I, if I was to cut my hand, if I was to fall off my bike on the way home this evening and, and cut my hand, I know that within a day or two, that area of my hand would be red, maybe a bit swollen, a bit painful. So those are the sort of signs of inflammation that we've known about for thousands of years. And I think everybody would be able to kind of see uh, inflammation in that way. But I think one of the things that I want to try and get across in the book, particularly for people that may not already know a lot about the immune system, is that what you can see of inflammation is usually the tip of an iceberg. So, okay, it, it might only be my finger that looks like it's inflamed, but actually what that represents is, uh, you know, the immune cells of my body kind of uh, concentrating in my hand to try and fight off the risk of infection. But they're also going to be churning out these, you know, inflammatory hormones, you might say, cytokines, proteins that will circulate throughout the blood and will pull other immune cells into my hand to help reinforce the defense against infection. So even if it looks local, inflammation is generally systemic. It generally involves the whole body to some degree. And when you start sort of thinking about it in that way, it's not um, so far-fetched to see how inflammation, even if it's in one particular part of your body, the teeth, the hand, wherever it might be, it's going to stir up this more global response of the immune system as a whole. That's going to put these inflammatory hormones in circulation. And one of the places they will circulate to is the brain. And, um, you know, again, when I was uh, a medical student, which is, it is quite a long time ago now, I mean, it's probably about sort of uh, 30 years ago or so, we were taught as a matter of sort of certain fact, dogma, that inflammation in the body could not get into the brain. Those inflammatory proteins that I was talking about, they could circulate in the blood all they liked, but they were never going to get to the brain because there was something called the blood-brain barrier, which was conceived 
at the time was a bit like a Berlin Wall. You know, in other words, completely impermeable. The brain was said to be immune privileged, which meant, you know, unless something absolutely catastrophic happened, like a stroke or a tumor or something like that, that really messed up the anatomy in the in the brain, it was generally protected from inflammation in the body. Um, well, we now know that that is not true. You know, in fact, there are many ways that an inflammatory uh, process or an inflammatory signal in the body can signal across the blood-brain barrier and can change the inflammatory status of the brain. Um, and of course that's very relevant in terms of understanding how inflammation could directly cause mood changes or changes in levels of energy or changes in the clarity with which people can think about the future. Mm. Um, so all of this is sort of science that's really opened up. I mean, immunology has exploded as a science in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. And there are many things now taken for granted in immunology, which, you know, as I say, when I was a medical student, were just not anticipated. They weren't on the mm. radar. And I think as you take on board the new science of immunology and the new understanding of how the immune system can talk to the brain and vice versa, it does become a lot more natural to think about how psychological symptoms could be related to physical disease, how inflammation of the body, even you know, a local inflammation of the finger or a tooth could uh, affect changes in how the brain is working, which ultimately lead to psychological symptoms, mental symptoms. Yeah. And even as it, it's interesting actually hear you saying that now and having read the book, but it somehow, hearing it again, it, there is something that seems radical, right? That a tooth infection could make me depressed, yeah. you know, through the through the physical response. Yeah. Um, uh, and this is this is a really in, important idea. You know, if, if you're right, it has huge implications, right? I think it. I, I think it has a lot of implications potentially. Um, it's interesting, you know, to wonder why does that idea seem so radical in the first place. Um, and I, the argument I make in the book is that it's radical in the context of the idea that the mind and the body are very separate things. You know, this is the old dualist idea that we inherited from Descartes 400 years ago, uh, you know, who thought of the body as like a machine that obeyed the laws of physics was kind of, you could write mathematical equations to describe how the body worked. You could experiment on it. It was a thing in the world just like that book. And the mind in his uh, concept was completely different. I mean, actually he was talking about the soul, but we, we now translate that to mean the mind. He, he thought that the soul, the immaterial, you know, divine spark was a completely different thing from the machine of the body and that humans were some kind of combination of those two. And that idea still lingers on very uh, pervasively, not always very consciously, but I think if you look at, you know, if you look at, for example, how the NHS is organized today, you know, if you've got mental health symptoms, you'll probably go to a different healthcare organization, a different NHS trust, a different hospital, and see a different kind of doctor to, uh, you know, the case if you've got physical 
health problems. You know, the healthcare services, for example, are divided into mental and physical. The medical profession is quite divided into you know, physicians and psychiatrists. Um, and there are many other ways in which that split sort of endures in how medicine's organized, how healthcare is provided, how we think conceptually about the causes of symptoms. Um, and this idea that you're, you know, an infected tooth can cause a change in your state of mind uh, is radical, I think, because it's one tiny little experience that cuts across that philosophical chasm, if you will, the, the chasm of dualism between the mind and the body. If we weren't dualists, I'm not sure we'd find it so surprising. But Western <laughs> medicine certainly is, is saturated by dualism still. Yes. And so I wonder whether societies who don't have that dualism so pervasively yeah. in the culture. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And I think you know, if you uh, you know, if you look at some of the Eastern medical traditions, um, they have not made such a sort of sharp divide between mental and physical states. And I don't know that it's true that these sort of ideas about the immune system and and, and the brain and the mind. Are going to catch on to a greater extent in those kind of cultures which come from a different philosophical background. I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out but you're absolutely right I mean dualism is the way we think about ourselves or has been the way we think we think about ourselves in the West um, that doesn't mean it's you know the way that everybody thinks about the relationship between body and mind. Mm. I'm just I'm thinking my own experience here with with yoga I mean I've been uh, practicing yeah. yoga for yeah. 20 years yeah. and Certainly in that tradition, there isn't the same right. sort of rigid split. No. Um, and also from my own experience of therapeutic work, where I've done a lot of work on the body, mm. uh, specifically through rolfing and releasing fascial tension, mm. and how that has given me extraordinary benefits in terms of my mental states. Yeah. And even beliefs, in some cases, have mm. started to shift as I've started to mm. orient myself differently in my body and release mm. tensions in my body. Uh, so uh, so uh, in my experience is um, that there is a very deep link between what's happening in the body and what's happening in my mind mm. um, across you know, mood, yeah, beliefs, sort of outlook, all of, all of mm. the things that I'm consciously aware of in my mind mm. seem to be able to be impacted at some level by what's going on mm. in my body as a mm personal experience, mm. yeah. Well, you know, I think it's interesting. And I, you know, I, I, when, since the book's been published, you know, I've had quite a lot of people contact me one way or another, and a lot of people have said similar things. I mean, I've had quite a lot of people from the yoga community say, you know, they recognize the ideas. Um, and I've had a lot of people say, you know, it's very interesting to hear you talk about the relationship between physical disease and mental health because you know my son or my wife or you know perhaps even myself you know have, have been battling with those experiences and a lot of people find it very difficult to get um, what you might call joined up healthcare you know if you're somebody with a physical disease and associated psychological symptoms fatigue or depression whatever they might be you know, right now it's very difficult to, I mean, unless you've got an exceptionally um, 
uh, enlightened general practitioner, it's very difficult to find healthcare that's going to address your issues, you know, as a whole. You know, people, the, pa the patient experience is usually that, you know, as I said already, the mental health bit goes off to see mm. a psychiatrist and the, the physical disease will go and see a physician. Um, which is convenient for the medical profession, but I'm not sure it's the best way of delivering healthcare for the patients. Yeah, but it's, it's convenient in the sense that it doesn't require anyone to challenge their deeply held philosophical viewpoints, right? Well, that's uh, right, yeah. That's at the deepest level, it seems that's where the convenience is. Yeah, it's very, it's very non-disruptive. Um, and it means, you know, uh, specialised practitioners, psychiatrists, as well as um, physicians don't have to get out of their comfort zone too much. Um, you know, they can just sit and see patients and deal with them in the specialist domain that they feel most comfortable about. But, you know, that's one way that I think uh, the world might change. You know, I think that we might see really quite soon a greater focus on developing healthcare solutions for people that, you know, start with the patient as, you know, one person who might have depression and joint pain and those are both parts of the same patient experience and there has to be a kind of healthcare response that's a bit more patient-centric rather than saying, well, it, you know, given the way that we've organised the NHS and given the, the way that we've all trained ourselves professionally to be specialised in one thing or another, you know, it's it's more convenient then to have the patient, you know, tour around the hospitals and clinics and seek different bits of special advice from different people. But I think one change that I'd like to see happening and I, I can begin to see happening is that we'll change how those specialists are organised, how specialist medicine is perhaps lined up a little bit more around the patient. Yeah. But even as you say that, I can see the value of specialists, right? Of mm. a specialist sort of deliberately closing off. Mm. Um, potential you know, lenses on which to view the problem and, and going deep yeah. with a particular yeah. perspective to uncover something. But then you also want to be able to connect all of these yeah. discoveries and ways of looking at the body and the mind and treat the patient based on a broader knowledge, it seems to me. Yeah, but both right. are valuable. I think that's right. You do need to go deep, but you also need to be able to zoom out and join the dots a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but it seems to me we orient ourselves around that deep work yeah. as opposed to the patient. So we're kind of organising ourselves around professional interests sometimes as opposed to Quite. patient experience in the whole. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's, uh, that's a sort of a powerful insight. And I, 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 do, I do think that more of us are waking up to that. But, but my sense is in the East, it's like, oh, it's taking you this long. <laughs> but... Well. It, I mean, so some great, you know, obviously some great things came out of, you know, um, the, the dualist tradition. I mean, I don't want to be, you know, it's not like Western medicine hasn't been successful. It has, you know, and there are many, many, many advances in Western medicine like that have depended on that deep focus mm. and really being able to shut out a lot of other things and think, well, what is the cause of this person's fever, for example, is it yeah. an infection? What kind of an infection is it? What antibiotics should we be using? I mean, all of that, which we take completely for granted, yeah. is uh, you know a direct reflection of that sort of laser-like focus on the the body machine, if you will. 
but I do think that the mental health side of that dualist split has not prospered. You know, I mean, I think we've got you know, depression, alcohol use, psychosis, um, are the you know, three mental health disorders that are in the top 10 of the major causes of disability worldwide. Um, major problems for which we still have very limited understanding and we haven't seen a lot of new treatments come through in the last 10 or 20 years, certainly. And I think, you know, the, the, the conventional split between body and mind has been great for the body in many ways, bodily medicine. But I think we, we have a, a legacy to deal with on the more sort of psychological side, uh, where advances have not been, you know, have not kept pace with the rate of progress in, for example, cancer medicine. Yeah. But I suppose if I was a, a hardcore dualist in this case, I might say, oh, well, that's just because we don't understand the brain as well yet. And yeah. as our understanding of the brain improves, then, then we'll, we'll address that and our, and our treatments for mental health problems will improve over yeah. time. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And, you know, there, you know, at the same time that there have been advances in immunology over the last 20 years, there have also been tremendous advances in neuroscience. And we do understand more than we used to about, you know, um, what kind of brain networks might be important for mood, what, might, what brain networks might be important for addiction, um, for compulsivity. You know, there, there has been more understanding of the basic neuroscience as it relates to mental health. But we, we haven't had much in the way of new treatments. Mm -hmm. um, and even saying, okay, you know, we'll do a better job of understanding the mind when we understand how it's linked into the body, uh, into the brain, that's good. But, you know, the brain is not, you know, is not a detached organ sitting in a, <laughs> you know, in a, in a jar of fluid, it's connected to the body. And, you know, the brain and the body are part of the same organism, yes. obviously. And, you know, it's that link between not just mind and brain, but mind, brain, and the body that I think the the inflamed mind is 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 really trying to focus on. Yeah, yeah. The other thing you talk about in the book is it was start to explore is what what sets us up for inflammation in the fir yeah. first place. So, what are some of the contributors to us if we if we take the the, the position that inflammation is, is causal with respect to some of these mental health issues. Yeah. What comes before inflammation? Yeah. Well, I mean, so there are many, many possible causes of inflammation. Um, I mean, there's obviously all those medical diseases, and I mentioned already you know, arthritis um, as one disease, physical disease, but you know, uh, we now know that inflammation is involved in uh, many other physical disorders. For example, obesity. You know, the more obese you are, all other things being equal, the higher the level of inflammation in the body. Um, we've known for a long time that obesity and depression tend to go together. So uh, the idea that you might be inflamed because you're obese and depressed because you're inflamed is one possible scenario. Um, that's one possible cause of inflammation. Another sort of, I think, very 
very interesting new area is that uh, stress can make you inflamed. Um, and that's interesting because if you step back and think, well, what's the single biggest cause or risk factor for depression and anxiety and many other uh, mental health disorders, it'll be social stress. So, you know, bereavement, loss of employment, or childhood maltreatment or abuse. These stresses that we've known for a long time uh, put you at much higher risk of, of depression. And the new, or some of the new science that's emerging is beginning to show us that actually those stressful experiences elicit uh, a, an immune response. They make you inflamed. Um, and again, that could be part of the causal chain. You know, that you're exposed to a stress, perhaps as a child, your, your immune system responds to that, becomes inflamed, and stays inflamed. You know, there's a, possibly a memory mm. of inflammation that you carry forward over many years from childhood into later life, and that puts you at, at risk of becoming you know, inflamed again should you be exposed to different kinds of stresses, and that may be relevant to why stress is uh, a risk factor for depression. You know, inflammation may be part of the uh, unpicking of that risk factor in terms of a more step-by-step um, -step causal pathway. Yeah. Um, I should say that all of this sort of stuff about causality and you know how stress can cause inflammation and so on, there is evidence from humans, but there's also a lot more evidence in animals. Um, so sometimes when I'm talking about these things, it, I, I'm sort of reflecting to myself that I'm talking about uh, scientific experiments that have been done in, let's say, rats or mice, which uh, are probably relevant to the human experience, but there's still a lot we need to understand about the human uh, condition as well as what we can see in those experimental animals. Right, right. But what I, struck me in the book is, were we to take what you just said as, um, as, as valid at some level, um, mm -hmm. albeit that maybe some of the evidence we have is based on animal models yeah. rather than human ones. Um, you had this, this cycle in the book um, where these stressors can contribute to uh, an inflammatory response which can contribute to uh, conditions in the brain yeah. which can then give us yeah. depression and, and, and this gives us this cycle, right? Yeah. That, um, yeah. that, that I think, well, could you take us through that? <laughs> well, I think you, you yeah. summarized it very well. I mean, there's, you know, there is uh, conceivably, okay, this is not proven, but there's conceivably a vicious cycle here. So you've got inflammation from various sources, including stress, causes changes in how the brain works, causes changes in mood. Mm -hmm. And then once you're depressed, you know, you are more at risk of further stress you know if you're if you're if you're a 20 year old student and you become depressed and you have to take time out of university for example it's going to be stressful to get back to catch up so you know experiences of depression can cause stress and then that stress uh, can trigger inflammation um, which could in turn lead to further depressive symptoms so you can see how it could go around in a vicious cycle um, you know, but I'll tell you the other thing about depression, which is so, is, a, is a habit that we've got to, all of us, I think, try hard to kind of break, is the, is the, 
the tendency to talk about it as if it's all one thing, you know, mm. and as if what I'm saying now is a total explanation for everybody's experience of depression. Um, because I'm pretty sure that's not true. Well, you say in the book, even in some of the studies, that uh, not all of the patients that the cohorts in these studies had increased signs of inflammation no. when they were depressed. So it's it, it's not always the case that inflammation and um, depression are strictly correlated. I think that's right. I think that's, and that's really I think that's really important because um, you know I think I think it's one of the reasons we haven't seen a lot of new treatments come through. Certainly not in drug treatments. Um, I think it's partly because um, we've got, you know, we've got the habit of thinking that there should be a panacea, if only we could find it. There should be a drug, a magic bullet, that, you know, would work as a perfect antidepressant for everybody with depression. And that's how all the clinical trials have been designed. And I just don't think that's a very sort of smart um, assumption to be making. Uh, you know, just if you think about the scale of depression, you know, how many people we're talking about, um, you know, it's, it's a, stats are it's a one in four risk that you or I will have an experience mm. of depression at some point in our lives. Another way of thinking about it is every family is going to be touched by depression. That's, an, you know, a lot of people. Is it is it plausible that all of those people are becoming depressed for the same reason, whether that's supposed to be inflammation or whatever else it might be. And I, I don't think that's a, a likely explanation. I think we do much better with um, depression and anxiety and actually many other psychiatric um, syndromes if we, we stopped imagining that they're all caused by the same thing and could all be treated by the same drug and took a leaf out of um, the, the sort of medical textbooks, if you will, um, where progress has often come by understanding that you can have the same symptoms for very different reasons, and the most effective treatment will target the causes, not the symptoms. Yeah. So if you think about fever, you know, if you think about having a fever in, let's say, the 18th century, you know, you'd go to your doctor and you'd say, you know, I'm feeling sweaty and miserable and... Um, and hot, uh, and they might offer you some kind of, I don't know, some horrible treatment designed to lower your fever to treat the symptom. But the real breakthroughs came when people said, well, you know, maybe you're feverish because you're infected, and maybe you're infected because, um, you know, you've got this particular bacterium or this particular germ in your body. In other words, take the take it from the symptom yeah. down to the cause, and then clobber the cause, treat yeah. the cause. And that's how medicine has made progress. And I think in psychiatry, we should aspire to do something similar. And we should say, you know, if somebody comes to see me, they've got depressed, uh, you know, they've got depressed symptoms, low mood, loss of pleasure, feeling guilty about the past and so on. That isn't the diagnosis, that's just the starting point. Yeah. And then you've got to figure out, well, what's the cause? And it could be inflammation for some people. And there might be quite a lot of other people with the same symptom profile who have a different cause. Yeah. Um, so it's not about trying to sort of claim that this is a complete solution for everything. Yeah. 
uh, I'd be very happy if we could just say, well, look, you know, there's, I don't know, best guess now, about a third of people with long-standing severe depression might have uh, inflammation one way or another. If we could just focus on that third and figure out exactly what's going on and what the best way of treating the cause of depression in that that particular group of patients, I'd be very happy with that. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to work for everybody. If we could just, you know, identify uh, a subset of, of patients and do something a bit more definitive uh, to their benefit, I think that would be a very satisfactory outcome. Right. Well, this probably ties in a little bit with your experience in the commercial realm, uh, and you talk about it a little bit in the book. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about you know what the I suppose industry response to this is uh, and where you see it going. Well, you know, industry generally, for the, certainly for the last fifteen years or so, has been quite wary of mental health. Yeah. Um, so a lot of big companies have pulled out of psychiatry. You know, a lot of companies that had been very active in developing antidepressants are no longer active in that space at all. Um, you know, and I know not everybody loves Big Pharma, but I think it's uh, a disadvantage for mental health that we don't have as much private sector investment in finding new treatments as we used to. Um, and, you know, if you think, well, why has industry by and large pulled out. There are a number of different reasons, but the simplest way of putting it is that actually a lot of big companies spent a hell of a lot of money trying to find new antidepressants or new treatments for anxiety, new treatments for schizophrenia and failed. And, um, you know, beyond a certain point, it just doesn't make sense if you're running a business to keep plowing R&D investment into an area which never generates a return in terms of new treatments that you can market. So I understand the business decision. The question is, if you are committed to trying to do something for mental health, what, you know, under what sort of scenario can you imagine that people might make a different business decision and say, well, actually, this looks tractable, let's invest, let's see if we can make some more progress. And I think, um, you know, I think it, the immuno angle is potentially interesting from that point of view for at least a couple of reasons. One is that you know immunology, and you know what in, you might call immunotherapeutics, so drugs that target the immune system, have been very successful in many other areas. Um, you know, neurology, cancer, uh, cardiovascular disease. People are developing anti-inflammatory drugs, so. Across the world, there's a lot of interest. There are a lot of companies that have, you know, immunologists in them who have drugs that were originally developed to treat, you know, one of a wide range of diseases. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of existing molecules. There's a lot of existing expertise, and there's a track record of success. So there's some level of confidence, and. You know, one of the ideas I talk about in the book is so-called repurposing. You know, maybe you could get to a new antidepressant instead of starting from scratch, instead of starting, you know, with 
try and identify, you know, the, the molecule in the brain that causes depression and build a drug around that. Maybe you could say, well, uh, we've got a drug in our company that we've already successfully developed for rheumatoid arthritis, say, and we can see in those clinical trial data that, that drug has some benefit on the psychological symptoms that very commonly co-occur um, with arthritis. Maybe we could try repurposing that as a treatment for depression, even in people that don't already have arthritis, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So sort of, and that's attractive from a business point of view because you get to try new treatments without having to pay all the upfront investment yeah. uh, to get into the clinic, as they say, because that's already been, you've already covered off all that investment to develop the drug for arthritis. Mm. So the repurposing possibility is one attractive feature. And I think the other important thing, potentially... And didn't that work for Viagra? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it did. I mean, Viagra is the, you know, is the, you know... Well, Viagra was a brilliant story in many ways. Uh, because, as you know, that was a drug that was under development for China, right? Mm -hmm. It was a heart, you know, that was supposed to be a cardiac blockbuster. And then they put it into phase one trials. So that's the sort of very preliminary trials where you test for safety and so on and try and identify whether your drug has any side effects. And they found this drug did have a particular side effect. It caused erections. But the clever thing about that story was that somebody in the company made the mental switch to say, well, maybe this isn't a side effect. Maybe this is, you know, the, the principal beneficial. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's not a bug, it's a feature. And, and that's where Viagra went off on a completely different path the one that was planned but that it was so yes it was kind of repurposing um, it was repurposed quite early on in its development um, but you know I you could imagine drugs that are already on the market for yeah. inflammatory disease might be worth a second look to treat those people who have depression related inflammation yeah um, so yeah, I mean, Viagra is a very good example of, of that repurposing philosophy. But I think the other thing that's attracted to industry potentially is, if you think, why have so many, why did so many antidepressant treatment trials fail? You know, from let's say 1990 to 2010, there was a lot of a lot of money went into that area, and not much came out. Well, pretty much all of those trials just treated depression as if it was one thing. You know, so you had to have a diagnosis of depression and then that was it. You were into the trial. Whereas I think if you could use biomarkers or blood tests to say, okay, this is a trial of an anti-inflammatory drug for depression. So to get into it, get into the trial, you've got to be both depressed and you've got to have some kind of blood test evidence for inflammation. Yeah that might be a, a more successful strategy because you know, you're not trying to develop a panacea, you're trying to more precisely target your new medicine to address the cause of the symptom, in this case, depression being linked to inflammation. Yeah. Uh, but because the immune system's everywhere and you can, you can measure a lot of the immune system from a blood test, uh, those kind of biomarkers, that kind of way of targeting treatment, uh, I think is more tractable or could be more tractable uh, by taking anti-inflammatory drugs and repurposing them for depression than it might be if you started you know, trying to repurpose another drug that 
impacted a brain molecule of some sort. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense. Um, and I also like, I mean, and coming back to your to your cycle, something that, that that clicked for me in terms of this relationship between stress and inflammation and the, and the cycle and the vicious cycle is as a uh, as somebody who. I mean, my experiences in terms of mental health have, have been around, not so much around depression, but around compuls compulsivity. Mm. And I've often had debates about, well, is it, is it the environment that we should focus on to have us be less, you know, less stressed and less susceptible to indulge in addictions or compulsions? Or, or is it more about going to the causes I see of some of that underlying, for me, unresolved trauma and, and work at that level uh, to ultimately... Um, relieve the symptoms on that basis. But I think what's interesting here is you're saying, well, it's really both and this whole thing, all of this feeds itself. Mm. And that where we should be looking uh, at, and for our responses to individuals is actually across all of these. So let's look at your stresses. Let's look at what we can do at a pharmacological level in the brain. And let's also look at therapies or whatever might work in terms of resolving any underlying issues that are yeah. driving your depression yeah. or addictions or whatever it might be it's that the way you laid, laid that out seemed to me to to i suppose really articulate what what it was that i was intuiting around what we needed to be talking about in terms of addressing individuals and their and their mental health well mental slash physical health right because yeah. it's even using that label is yes is I agree. yeah it's it's their health yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think seeing it more in the round is really important. Yeah. And some people would say, you know, we already we already do a version of what you just outlined. You know, <clears throat> somebody comes with compulsive or addictive problems to see a psychiatrist, for example, they might try psychological treatment, they might they might try some drug treatment, you know, they'll try various different approaches. But I think um what we need to do is be able to predict a little bit more exactly, you know, what treatment is going to work best for which individual patient with obsessive, you know, whether they've yeah. got compulsive uh, or addictive or depressive symptoms, whatever, yeah. you know, all of those are terribly common. Um, uh, what are the root causes? And they will be different between people and we should be focused on that, um, but quite broad-minded about what could be causal. It might not just be childhood memories, it might be some kind of physical mechanism like, um, well, inflammation. Yeah, no, exactly. So there's a, but, but so, so I think that's right, seek the causes, but almost the picture in my mind was, was it's like there's a, there's a battery of responses here. Right, because mm. we're we're complex and multifaceted, and it mm. made much more sense for me mm. that actually, what you're looking for in terms of addressing this is something that's that's equally multifaceted yeah. as a response. Yeah, uh, and that and that yeah that that made a a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah, multifaceted, but you know, ideally, you know, joined up. Enjoyed so, so yeah, yes. you know, you mentioned yoga, mm. um, and um, you know, it's interesting to me that there, and I've talked a lot about drugs and how drugs might sort of change your immune system and your inflammatory state. 
But, you know, there is a little bit of research, and there needs to be more, to suggest that, you know, yoga um, uh, and other sort of lifestyle or psychological interventions can have effects on the immune system. So it's not, you know, it, I think we ought to allow that, you know, bodily processes, bodily mechanisms can change the state of mind. So like inflammation can cause depression, but actually it could also work the other way around. And if you, if you uh, can exercise greater control through, for example, yoga or mindfulness uh, or over your mind, then that might have benefits to your body. Mm. Uh, and I think that two-way street is quite important. I also do think it's very important that as you know, one begins to sort of conceive of these things, which certainly from a sort of conventional medical point of view, some of this is quite, you know, outrageous, really. I mean, you know. <laughs> You're a maverick. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's not very, it's not the traditional way of thinking about things. As we sort of allow ourselves to think these things, we should just stay tuned to the science, yes. you know, and just make sure that, you know, that we're always seeing the evidence for the claims that you know we're interested in making. I mean, you know, for example, diet. You know, there's a lot of talk about um, how diet can change your immune system. You know, there are there are anti-inflammatory diets that are um, available, um, and I don't know that all of them. I haven't read all of those books, but. Often when I look into them, I don't see as much solid scientific evidence for the claims as I'd like to see. And I don't think that's because the claims, the claim that, you know, you can change your mood by changing what you eat. You know, again, when I was, you know, a medical student, when I was a young doctor, that was a bonkers idea, you know, really. Mm. No, nobody would have given that any serious credence. I can now conceive how it could be true. You know, I can conceive that you can change your diet. That's going to change your microbiome, the bacterial population in your gut. That might elicit an immune response or some other kind of response from your gut, which feeds into how your brain works and causes a change in mood. I can sort of imagine how that could be, but I still think we need the evidence. Yeah. Um, so I suppose my mind is uh, a bit more open to some of these concepts than it was, um, but I still quite like to see a bit more hard data. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't want to lose the scientific method. No, we've got to stay reasonably sceptical. Um, and I think we've got to insist on, you know, seeing data and not just unsupported claims. But on the other hand, we shouldn't be blind. We shouldn't, I think we should not be sort of blinkered by a particular philosophical perspective and think, well, that can't, you know, there's no point trying to collect data mm. or do experiments on the relationship between diet and mood because that just can't yeah. be right. I think we should be open-minded and sceptical, if mm. that makes sense. Yes, yes. We've talked a lot here about the individual, mm. and I noticed myself that's where I tend to orient my mm. thinking around this. Mm. What about the, the social context as well for individuals? I mean, have you done much thinking about that? You know, how they're connected to others and you know, what impact that can have? 
I've not done really, not really, no. I mm. personally have not done anything much looking at social um, context. I mean, I think the, um, and I, I'm not sure that there's been much done mm. about social context in relation to inflammation and um, and depression particularly. Um, I think the, the clearest exception is the stuff that I mentioned about stress. Yeah. So I think if you are in a, if you're in a socially stressful context, it it bumps up your immune system. So there's a you know a, a study that I write about in the book. Not it's a study that somebody else did, but I like it very much because it seems sort of um, it's not a medical story, but it is quite a sort of familiar s situation um, where in, in this experiment they looked at uh, teachers, uh, some of whom were stressed, chronically stressed by their occupation and they found that the more stressed teachers had higher levels of inflammation uh, and then they made all of the teachers uh, stand up and do a bit of public speaking which is a sort of as as we all know uh, a stressful experience and what was interesting both the both the teachers that were stressed before they did the experiment and the teachers that came in feeling pretty sort of bouncy about life they both had a bit of a spike in terms of inflammation following the public speaking mm. uh, experience. Um, and it, I, I just find that rather intriguing, you know, that you can have these kind of, you can be locked into a job that you really don't like doing, it can be burning you up uh, and causing chronic stress and that might have an echo in your uh, immune state, but also you can be feeling, you know, you know, mostly okay about things and suddenly find yourself in an acutely very stressful situation yeah. and that may also elicit an immune response. Um, I think one of the, um, you know, one of the sort of bigger questions, uh, you know, arises from all of this work looking at the relationship between social stress and inflammation as well, you know, wh why is that, why does that happen, you know, why, why uh, why does my immune system get involved if I lose my job? Or why why do levels of inflammatory proteins go up in my blood if, if I'm bereaved? Um, and uh, I don't think anybody has um, a complete answer to that. But certainly if you think about childhood stresses, let's say losing both your parents in infancy, uh, you know, that would have been a survival threat, you know, in earlier times. You know, those mm. kind of extreme social stresses in early childhood would have been as risky as, you know, being infected or wounded as a child. And there is a theory, it's not my theory, but I think it's an interesting one, that uh, we have evolved to detect situations, social situations, that in historical times past might have um, predicted some kind of threat to our survival um, and that that's uh, one of the reasons the immune system still is responsive to those social threats today. Mm. And so it does beg the question, why would that be useful? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, so, so the theory is that, you know, Let's suppose that um, uh, we go back hundreds of thousands yeah. of years. 
and um, I meet uh, you know, a gang of um, men from another tribe. Uh, that's a socially threatening situation. And the evolutionary theory goes that, you know, in the old days, bumping into a gang of socially threatening men from another tribe was a pretty strong predictor that there was going to be violence. Puts you on alert. Yes, it puts the immune system on alert because it basically, if I detect social threat, uh, I can, it used to be quite predictive of imminent injury mm. uh, or wounding or you know some other physical threat. Right, as uh, for a child who loses his parents right. and protection. That's the theory. Yeah. 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 If you lose both of your, you know, you lose both of your parents as an infant, you're going to be at risk of infection, of malnutrition, of you know many yeah. other yeah. factors. And in theory, it's helpful to have the immune system, you know, g'd up and ready to deal with those consequences as soon as you've identified the social threat that might lead to them. Yes. You see what I mean? Yeah. That is the theory. Yes. You know, it's like a lot of evolutionary theories, it makes some sense. Um, but it's rather difficult to prove or disprove. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, you know it's, it's one way of thinking about why we might have evolved um, an immune system that seems to be responsive to social threats and capable of changing our behaviour. Right. But where there is evidence that some level of social stress can cause, for some people, yeah. uh, an inflammatory response. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that sort of experimental evidence is, yeah. uh, you know, getting stronger all getting the time. Stronger, right. The sort of more evolutionary yeah. sort of rumination about where that came from and why we're like that yeah. is, is more speculative. I mean, it, it's worth saying that a lot of these um, relationships between stress inflammation and depression, they're not unique to humans. Mm. I mean, you know, if you make a rat stressed, socially stressed, if you, put a, if you put a small rat in a cage with a big, angry, you know, mm. unfamiliar rat, and they establish a hierarchy, which is a polite way of saying the big rat beats up the little rat, yeah. the little rat will have, you know, an immune response and will show changes in behavior that look a lot like depression yeah um, and you know obviously when you're working with animals it is possible to explore all of the sort of you know causal connections in much more detail yeah but I don't think that any of this is uniquely human I think it you know it goes back quite a long way certainly mm. into you know our mammalian ancestors yeah yeah well um, uh, from my understanding, in terms of where it operates in the brain, it's mm. a lot of this activity occurs in older parts of the brain as well. Yes, so indeed. It's not all in the neocortex, is it? No, no, it's <laughs> not, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, the other thing that interests me now as we're talking is because a lot of the, the work I do is in businesses, yeah. and a lot of the listeners of this show will be operating in businesses, is yeah. actually you start to see a potential, I mean, some of which, of course, we know, but the link between social stresses in the workplace yeah. and ultimately performance, right? And yeah. as we would say, business before performance yeah. or productivity. But if yeah. you start to establish links between social stresses, maybe fear of losing a job or yeah. bullying bosses or yeah. 
work that you don't find meaningful, all of the sort of sins, I suppose, of, of, of the workplace in yeah. many contexts. Yeah, the, well, that could be a listing immune responses, which could have a mood problem, so that you could actually see a, a, a vicious cycle potentially operating there as well. Uh, yes, I think so. And I, you know, I think um, all of those occupational stresses, if you will, um, uh, or many of them may also be associated with, in, you know, poor physical health outcomes. Right. So get, again, it gets back to the, you know, the point you were making mm. earlier. Even though we're trying to have a conversation about life after dualism and life <laughs> after the split between body and mind, we do keep coming back to talk about, you know, mental health as if it was something that happened over, you know, in this place and, yeah. and physical health elsewhere. Whereas I think a lot of this is going to. Um, you know, the links between stress and immune system, I think are important both for mental health and probably also for understanding the impact of stress on physical health. I mean, you know, yeah. if if, um, if you were married to your partner for 30 or 40 years and suddenly lose them, it's clear that your risk of sudden death is much increased in the years following your bereavement. Um, so it's not, it's not as if social stress only changes the sort of psychological aspects of our right. well-being. Yes. You know, it does, it does knock on and have effects, really sometimes very, you know, dramatic, fatal effects on um, our physical health. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how easy you fall into that trap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. we just. It's a, yeah, it's almost like I have a physical aversion, I'm using the word physical, to, to not say mental, right, and just talking about health. Yes. It, it, yes. It's so hard to, to think about it as one thing. Yeah, it is. It's a very, uh, we, you know, we have to, I think it does require a conscious effort to, you yeah. know, to see, to, you know, to find ways of talking about these things which don't fall into the old you know, the old language and the old assumptions. And and also to be able to see these connections, which, you know, um, uh, I think quite abundant, you know, I mean, I think, I think, I think, the, you know, the, the basic association between inflammation and depression, for example, I, you know, I think everybody's seen that. It's just, we've got used to thinking about it and talking about it in a particular way, but not the only possible way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing that, as you, as you're speaking, is what what occurs to me is that if when I sort of consciously do try and talk more holistically, and I'll use this phrase like phrases like the, the whole human or mm. you know holistic, immediately I'm into there's a part of my brain oh this all sounds very woo woo very quickly, yeah. and it's how do we how do we talk in those terms? But to your point earlier, sort of not not lose the baby with the bathwater here and remember that the power of the scientific me method and yeah. the importance of, of, of evidence and, and not being in a completely sort of led by our sort of personal intuitions, right? Yeah. It's, it's both, isn't it? It is both, yeah. Mm. So, I mean, I think, you know, holistic is an interesting word because, you know, holistic is in many ways the obvious alternative to dualist, right? Yeah. Instead of thinking we're two things, we think we're one thing. Um, but holistic is a word that comes with a lot of baggage. Mm. And if you start talking about holistic medicine, the people do look at you a bit strangely, right? I mean, or at least they yeah. do, you know, in my life. Um, so I think it's a question, you know, I think it, it's about being open, you know, open-minded, 
but at the same time quite hard-headed about what you know what so I'm saying it's all, we're all saying it's all one thing, physical and mental, but what would be the experiments, what would be the data that would, you know, really explain that yeah. uh, connection? I mean, that's certainly, you know, that's certainly what's needed, you know, in the world that I work in, the sort of biomedical science world. You've got to have not just, an, you know, an intuition or a kind of counterintuitive hunch that it might not be all as you would, taught it was, you know, in medical school, you need to be able to explain exactly how you think these things, the mind and the body might be related to each other. And it does, it does need, we, we still need evidence. I mean, I wrote the book because, not because I thought it was all done and it was all cut and dried and it was, you know, ready to be, you know, published as a sort of complete understanding of things. I, I wrote the book because uh, I think the science is reach, reaching an inflection point and the evidence has accumulated to the level that it's beginning to attract a lot of interest and new studies and new evidence emerging all the time. But we still there's still work we need to do. I mean, we yeah. need to see some trial data, for example, that show that if you're depressed and inflamed and I give you an anti-inflammatory drug, you become less depressed. And there yeah. are sort of, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence to make people think that that should be true, but we haven't actually seen those data yet. Yeah. Um, another thing that uh, often crops up is genetics. You know, what, um, in medicine these days, if, you, if, you haven't, if you're not genetically anchored, that's a bit of a problem, you know. Yeah. Um, so how does the genetics of depression, which we barely understand still, how could that play into this whole story? Yeah. So there are some significant gaps in what we know at the moment. I really want to emphasize that, you know, this isn't certain and completely known, but I think it <laughs> is very interesting to sort of imagine how much might change in the future if we took a different way of, you know, we had a different way of looking at the world and we had a different way of looking at the patient experience and coupled that with, you know, proper scientific rigor. Maybe we could open up some completely different ways of understanding disease and treating it. Yeah. Well, and perhaps that's, that's perhaps a good, a good place to, to conclude the conversation. Um, I mean, certainly as I hear you there, it does give me some hope. And you talk about in the book how sort of woeful the progress has been. Mm. We sort of had the, the discovery of the SSR, and since then, not kind, much. kind of nothing, kind yeah. of not much. Uh, so this is exciting that we potentially have, yeah. potentially have a, a new avenue to, yeah. to explore. Um, so for people who are interested in this conversation and want to to learn more, obviously there's the book, The Inflamed yep. Mind, a radical new approach to depression. Is there anywhere else you might point the, the lay person to, to explore? Um, well, there's a website, themes? there's a website linked to that book. Yeah, um, which we can put the link, link, put the link in, in. And that's got some other media and it's got some frequently asked questions. Um, there's, I mean, you know, there's quite a lot of, um, you know, I mean, it was on the front page of the Times today, for example. I don't know if you saw that. There was a sort of um, 
a story about uh, some Chinese university had reanalyzed a lot of drug trials, and the headline of the Times was, you know, a dose of aspirin a day could ta could help tackle depression or something like that. So I think I think these I think quite a lot of news stories are kind of coming up around this area that people could yeah. tune into. Um, but I'm not aware of, I mean, there are other books, but I'm not aware of much else that is there as a resource for people at the moment. Yeah. Maybe I'm not, I'm just, maybe I'm just not, maybe it's there and I'm just not seeing it. But I, I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff about uh, anti-inflammatory diets and so on, but it, to my mind at least, it doesn't have the sort of scientific edge to it that I think is quite important. Um, that's not a very good idea. No, no, that's great. Yeah. Stop. I mean, I can thoroughly recommend the book. Very yeah. easy to read, read, full of stories from your own medical yeah. life as a doctor good. to fun. And, uh, yeah, uh, and I love the way the, you, the, the metaphors that you use to describe some of the intricacies of the, of the mechanisms. Good, thank um, you. So very enlightening. Thank you once again uh, for your time. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank great, you, Ed. Great pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.